I would like to start off by being very bold, very straightforward in making the following assertion. Intersectionality is a rebellious, sinful way of thought for a Christian. Can I be any clearer on that? If you think, if you've been listening to what has been said so far, the concept of intersectionality is a fundamental denial of the sovereignty of God and his providential actions amongst mankind. God makes men to differ. God gives certain people certain gifts that he does not give to others. I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I got a phone call about six o'clock in the morning from one of our previous speakers, Dr. Valcom. And he remembers what he was, um, was that 2016? When you, when you won the uh, jiu-jitsu championship, was it 2016? Okay, somewhere around then, uh, he had sent me a picture, and I really wasn't sure what the picture was on my little teeny tiny phone, uh, but uh, he had just won the super heavyweight category, as I recall. You're not quite as big as you were back then. Uh, but um, I am smart enough to know that if Vodi and I really get into it, my best chance is to outrun him. I'm not gonna let him lay one of those huge hands on me because as soon as he does, I'm done. Now, why is that? Now, I think I could probably outrun him. Uh, I ran over 1,100 kilometers last year. Uh, I've run across the United States now uh, since 2014. So I think, I think I might be able to outrun him, but I'm not gonna get close enough for him to prove that he is a much better person at jujitsu than I am. Now, is that some kind of intersectional inequality that we should somehow be passing laws, uh, that somehow he and I should have the exact same skills and the exact same abilities? No, that is ridiculous. God has made each one of us to differ. He has set the times and parameters of where various and sundry populations are to be. And we as Christians should start with a biblical understanding of the fact that God is working out his decree in this world. Let me guarantee you something. No one who ever came up with the concept of intersectionality began with the sovereignty of God. They were beginning with human concepts, human originated concepts, and when we try to take that kind of material and bathe it in some kind of biblical language, it still remains rotten to the core. So I just wanted to start off by making sure you understood from the very beginning where I come from in this situation, as I listen to the type of language that is being used in our culture today, where you look at someone and you go, they've got this disadvantage and that disadvantage and that disadvantage and they're, they're lower than the, the average height and, and the, this, this skin tone, they were born in this part of the place. I'm like, wait a minute, when did Christians reading the Bible ever come up with a concept like this? Where do we have anyone in Scripture who ever had that kind of a mindset coming before God and saying, God, I know you did not make me like other men, uh, but you will eventually, and eventually we're just all going to be one big mishmash of the same type of people. No, that is not what Scripture teaches. When this whole movement began to crash into my um, consciousness, and I was pretty slow getting there, there were lots of people that were here long before uh, I was. I even had Vody Balcom on my, on my program and still didn't have a real full understanding of what it was he was talking about when he talked about ethnic Gnosticism and things like that. 
Finally, when it started crashing through my consciousness, I could not help but just stand back and go, no, no, wait a minute. If, if we're all Christians here, if, if we have as our authority the word of God, how are you deriving this from the text of Scripture? Because see, I always thought amongst us Reformed folks that, that we wouldn't get off the track onto all these other things because we had, uh, we, we had a, a guidance for us in the form of the need to substantiate any positive teaching that we make on the basis of Scripture. We had this belief called sola scriptura. Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith of the church. And tota scriptura, we take all of Scripture and not just the parts we happen to like. And assuming that we would then apply meaningful exegetical parameters to that, I figured, well, we could never go off after this worldly stuff and that type of worldly stuff. And I was naive and I was wrong. We're seeing that happening all the time now, and it is very plain to me that what has happened is we have external sources of authority, external concepts, that for whatever reason, some purposeful, some because it sounds good to them, some because they, they've had certain personal experiences and so it appeals to them, but for some reason, people are adopting these things and using them as the lens through which to begin to do their interpretation of the Bible, and that is a very dangerous thing. And so when Mr. O'Fallon asked me to speak at this, I said, look, there's only one thing I feel overly competent to be able to even begin to try to do, and that is to go back to the basics, and I want to turn to the text of Scripture and to the first text that I brought out during the MLK 50 uh, celebration that took place at the beginning of last year, well, March, April of last year, and turn to Colossians chapter 3, if you'll turn with me there. What I would like to do in the brief amount of time that I have available to me is to walk through this text together and to give consideration to one simple reality. I would like to suggest to you that much of what is being presented, especially to you pastors, to those of you in churches where you're having people reading certain books, those books have been recommended to them by leading evangelical uh, teachers, uh, that we have recommended in the past and they recommend these books to you. You may have people coming to you. Maybe some of your elders are reading these things. <sighs> when we listen to what is being said in these sources, we need to recognize that so much of it is very much Americanized. Thankfully, I have the opportunity of traveling around the globe. I'm leaving directly from G3 to teach in Russia for a week. Uh, and then I've got uh, research to do at uh, the INTF in Munster, Germany on the way back. I don't even get home till February. And so I've had the opportunity, especially over the past number of years, of doing ministry in South Africa. Uh, just this past year, I had the opportunity to go to South Africa, go up and, and visit with Dr. Balcom in Zambia at, at, at the university there and do some lecturing there. We even role-played a debate together. And uh, I think Dr. Balcom will admit he lost. Um, but he was playing a Muslim, so it's okay. It's a, it was sort of designed that way. Um, and besides that, he gave me like three times the amount of time that he took anyway. So it was sort of, sort of rigged from the start. But be it as it may, I've had the opportunity of doing some, some global trans, uh, uh, traveling. And it's fascinating to me, as I have conversations about these issues outside the United States, the very different complexion, and I don't mean that as a pun, the very different complexion that those conversations tend to take on. 
And so I'm concerned that there is a sense in which there is an Americanization of this conversation. We can't avoid our context, but here's my point. If we're going to be making gospel conclusions about the very nature of the gospel and whether the gospel is to address certain issues of creating some kind of systemic equality and all the rest of these issues that are being brought up today, shouldn't we be able to take this same kind of belief that's being promoted today and take it back into church history, take it back into the period of the apostles and see that the apostles operated upon this framework? Well, I haven't seen too many people try to make a super serious argument that the apostle Paul functioned on categories of oppressor and oppressed and well, how would he even define white privilege in that particular time period? It'd be sort of difficult to do, but uh, Roman privilege, that would, be, that would be the way to go. Roman privilege um, and some type of intersectionality. Is that how we find the early church functioning? Or if we apply those categories to the early church, does it not result in an absolute toxic stew that would have resulted in the fundamental fracturing of the unity of the early church? And if that's the case, then we need to keep this stuff out of our churches as clearly and as forcefully as we possibly can. So let's think about the church at Colossae. Let's think about the church at Colossae. All across the Roman Empire at this particular point in time, you have all sorts of ethnic groups that have been forcefully brought together into one context by Roman conquest. First by the Greeks under Alexander and then by the Romans. And now you have the Roman legions holding together all of these different disparate little kingdoms and ethnicities that frequently were at each other's throats, but now they could not be because of the Pax Romana, the power of the Roman legion. And the Romans wanted pretty much one thing. They didn't really care about what you believed or worshiped or things like that. As long as you allowed the peace to continue and they could collect their taxes so they could do the things that they wanted to do. And so you had a bunch of different kinds of people. Many of these ethnic groups would have hated each other. They had long histories of wars and genocides and slavery and everything else. And now they are forced into peaceful coexistence with one another. Doesn't mean they like each other, but they are under the, the, the boot of the Roman legion at that particular point in time. And into this mess comes the Christian gospel. And the gospel is, you know, the Romans were pretty good at sort of dividing their, their culture up into various strata. So you didn't necessarily have to spend a whole lot of time amongst people you didn't necessarily look like or want to be around. But the church destroyed all that. The church fundamentally said there is one body and we're all going to gather together and we're all under the lordship of Christ and we've all been redeemed in the same way. And not only that, there was this thing called the Lord's Supper. And everybody had to get together. And it didn't matter how much money you had. It didn't matter what your ethnic background was. It didn't matter whether you were a master or a slave or a soldier or a, a mid-ranking artisan someplace. You all came to the same table. Now that was unheard of. And it was a scandal amongst the Romans because the Romans saw the, the very carefully laid out hierarchy and structure 
of their society being undermined by this strange, weird cult that talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their, of their, of their king. They didn't understand any of those types of things. And it's very easy for strange rumors to get started. And they, the, the Christian people were not respected because you brought all these people together into one place and they could not understand how that could be. But I think we need to ask ourselves the question, how could that be? What was the power that created a unified early church? Now we know there were some divisions and they were rebuked by the apostles. We know that Paul's greatest fear was that there would be a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church. That's why he stands up to Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, because he was not walking straight in accordance with the truth of the gospel. That's how important it was. And we've all memorized Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that actually is in the context of all, meaning Jews and Gentiles. That's its primary application in that text. Paul is saying we're all in the exact same boat. Therefore, we need all the exact same Savior, the exact same righteousness. We attain it in the exact same way. And if there's some other way, you're going to end up with division. And Paul says, no, there is only one way. And so when we look at the church at Colossae, it would have been made up of all sorts of different ethnicities and backgrounds. And so when Paul writes to them as to how they are to relate to one another, if there were, in fact, concepts of intersectionality and oppressor and oppressed and privilege and, and all the things that we are told are so necessary to have a fully woke understanding of the gospel today, it should come out in the words that Paul writes. Let's take a look at them, beginning in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is the same thing as or amounts to idolatry. Now, let me just stop right there. The, the apostle has no problem in addressing a mixed audience with different backgrounds and different experiences and different standpoints and providing a fundamentally universal moral ethical exhortation to them for all men. There's nothing here about, well, you know, we know that some of you come from a, a particularly difficult and oppressed background, and so we're going to have a different standard for, for you all and, and your behavior. Uh, but those who come from a, a particularly privileged background, and you were, you were, you're, you're actually literate, not all that many people in that day were, you're actually literate, uh, therefore you're going to be held to a higher standard. No. Addressing everyone in the congregation, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, you are to consider yourself dead to these things, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So automatically there is a distinction in the apostle's mind between the congregation of Christ there in Colossae and the sons of disobedience upon whom the wrath of God is going to come. No distinction exists 
in the apostle's mind as he makes these comments. The only distinction that exists is a theological one, and that is you have the sons of disobedience. As he writes to the Corinthians, he'll refer to those who are perishing over against those who are being saved. That is the distinction that is made, but there's, there's nothing about ethnicity here. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You're being extremely insensitive here. In them you also once walked. It sounds like, from Paul's perspective, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background was. You were simply a child of disobedience. You were under the wrath of God. It sounds like, from his perspective, it doesn't matter whether your cultural experience would be considered a better or worse than someone else. You also walked in those things. You lived in them. And it didn't matter what your societal level was. It doesn't matter what your education was. But now something has changed. But now you also put them all aside. Something has changed. You cannot say, well, you know, amongst our people, amongst my clan, it's more acceptable that we have these little peccadilloes. Um, we tend to be very passionate people, and so we have anger. And so it's, it's just normal for us to have more anger amongst our people rather than those people over there. No, there is no such distinction made. It doesn't matter where you came from, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Doesn't seem that Paul has any concept that you could have people with greater authority and greater privilege over people with lesser authority and lesser privilege within the church. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, my friends, the only way to understand the biblical exhortations to believers is to recognize the radical nature of regeneration. And that radical act of sovereign power disrupts and redefines any and all previous relationships that we had, including ethnic or racial. Regeneration is a radical concept within the New Testament teaching. You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. How can we take seriously the biblical teaching of the radical nature of regeneration and yet then turn around and say, but... We should, within the church, specifically leave spaces for, and then fill in the blank, where we get to separate out from other people based upon ethnicity, social standing, education, I don't care what it is. Any concept like that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of what salvation is, the radical nature of regeneration, and as we'll see, the reality that our standing before God is based upon the exact same thing, which is the imputed righteousness of one, Jesus Christ. 
which makes for absolute equality amongst us in our standing before God. We have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Here is the very nature of regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit of God in conforming us to the image of Christ. We have the already accomplished and then the ongoing, the reality of the fact that it's God's intention that when he draws his people into himself, he desires to conform them to the image of Christ. And so here Paul lays it out for us. A new self, that means new identification. You have been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. That eclipses any other relationship, including familial relationships. Isn't that what Jesus taught? I have come a sword. I divide father and mother and son and child. Any other relationship, including ethnic relationships, societal relationships, political relationships, everything is put under the cross. <coughs> you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Not according to any external standards, but according to the image of the one. This is that, that same concept as the imputation of that one righteousness. Our identification is only in Christ. It has to be only in Christ because it's only him to whom we are united as the elect of God in our salvation. Then we have verse 11. I can't go as quickly through this. A renewal in which there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so this action, it's a renewal accomplished by God. It is the sovereign act of God. This renewal is one in which there is no, now our translations will insert terms like distinction or things like that, but that isn't actually in the text itself. It literally says, where there is not one Jew or Greek. There is not one Jew or Greek. Now I've had some people say, well you can't, you can't take that so literally. God does not remove our ethnicity from us. We do not all become sort of a, a mixture of all the skin colors of man when we're saved so that we're all just identical to one another. And, and isn't there, aren't there good things from our past and, and maybe our ethnicities or our tribes or, or political affiliations or country affiliations and citizenship and all the rest of that stuff, aren't there good things that, that God uses to make this beautiful rainbow of the elect? While all of those things may be true, what is being missed there is you're jumping past the foundation that gives the church its unity around the table 
to the later blessing that God can give by allowing us to learn about others and to grow in our own understanding of our relationship to others and all those wonderful things that cannot happen until the foundations have been laid. And the foundation that must be understood is that there is no Greek and Jew in the matter of one's renewal by the work of the Spirit of God. There can be no distinctions here. And as soon as we start suggesting that it would be better for us to allow for those distinctions to begin defining our relationship to one another, that's where we have completely lost the apostolic example. And so, a number of years ago, oh, I'm sorry, it was only last year, a number of years ago, huh, getting old. <clears throat> Actually, it was literally a number of months ago, this incident was misrepresented in a recently published book called Woke Church. Um, there was a conversation, one of those in-depth, deep theological conversations that takes place on Twitter, where I made what I thought was an obvious and incontrovertible statement. And that was that when we come to the Lord's table, that is not a white space or a black space, it is a Christ space. It is a mediator space. It is where our mind is to be completely upon the one who gave himself for us. Does not the very language of the institution say, do this as an anamnesis, a remembrance of what? Me. And so it would seem to me that it would be absolutely unarguable that at that point, any previous connections we have, whether they're ethnic or familial or political or anything else, has to be considered as nothing in comparison to the unity that is ours in focusing upon the one who gave his body and blood in behalf of his people. That is a Christ space. And that is the foundation of our union with one another. Some of you may remember what happened when I shared that. I even made a, I even made a meme. Yes, I've gotten sucked into the meme creation world. And so I put that out with just those, that, those words. And within about 24 hours, certain people had actually called for an ecumenical council in Philadelphia. Now, anybody who knows anything about church history, as soon as you hear somebody talking about calling an ecumenical council anywhere, let alone Philadelphia, you start chuckling just a little bit. But an ecumenical council needs to be called in Philadelphia to identify the heretics who promote the heresy of colorblind theology, which was evidently how my words were interpreted. And so we need to have another council of Nicaea. We've got Arius and James White. We've got to get rid of both of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But that's what happened. And, and a well-known African-American leader specifically said that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we must, we must have our ethnicity in the Lord's Supper, it is a matter of survival for us. 
Now, I do not question the passion with which he said that, but I question and reject the theology that underlies it. There is no Greek and Jew in the renewal to the image of Jesus Christ. Yet there could not have been a greater distinction in the minds of those who read this letter first than between Greek and Jew. Paul, this is a radical thing you're talking about. This had to have been extremely difficult for the first believers the first time they they walked into the Lord's Supper and they had to sit down right next to people that they had been taught to detest. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised, so much for the Galatian heresy. Barbarian and Scythian are ethnicities. From the Roman perspective, all those people out on the, on the borders were barbarians. The Scythians came out of the Russian steppe. They were a warlike people. And the people in Colossae, being farther toward the east, would, would know about who the Scythians were. And Paul says, there is no barbarian. I don't care if you're the, the most snooty Roman citizen in the world. There is no barbarian. There is no Scythian in Christ. And then, yes, he said it, there is no slave or free man. There is no slave or free man. (coughs) But Christ is all and in all. Now, we don't want to just leave that last phrase as just sort of a little addition because that really is the summit of what is being said. But please note, ethnicities, political orientations, social standings, being a slave or a free man, do not result in a distinction in the renewal to the image of Jesus Christ. The radical message of the Christian gospel is that the most powerful leader in Rome and the most lowly slave in Rome were both redeemed by the same price, given the same righteousness, given the same standing, we're being renewed by the same Spirit of God into the very same image of Jesus Christ. That is a radical unity. That is a radical oneness. And it's a radical oneness I have tremendously enjoyed experiencing as I've traveled around the world. I remember a couple of years ago I was in Ukraine and I'm old enough to have grown up where we practiced hiding under our desks because of the the possibility of a nuclear attack. And so I grew up during the Cold War. And so to stand in Ukraine and hear all these, especially male voices singing hymns in Russian, I could only stand there and go, my mom would never believe this. It was wonderful. I'll hopefully hear that again this coming week. It was wonderful. And it reminded me that Christ has his people on every side of every political barrier and wall that we could ever build. This is the unity that is ours in Christ. But Christ is all and in all. Do we really believe that? If so, why do we need all this other stuff that's coming to us from human philosophy and political systems that all of a sudden is now required for us to be truly, truly 
aware of what the gospel is. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, may I say something? Even if you say no, I'm going to say it anyways, because what can you have done about anyhow? Somewhat of a rhetorical question, isn't it? Most of us have seen this. It's already been said a couple of times from the podium this evening. But as I look at what is being demanded by the social justice movement, it is a movement that has no end game. It has no end game. It doesn't matter how many times you say you're sorry for your ancestors. Because five, year la- five years later, you're going to have to say it again with even more passion than you did it five years ago. There is no end game in what's being demanded in the social justice movement. There's no final redemption. There is no final forgiveness. The very essence of the movement is to maintain divisions, not bring about reconciliation. You have to completely capitulate to all the fundamental assertions, and even when you do, now all you get to do is be, if you're part of the bad groups, the oppressor groups, the privileged groups, what you're signing up for is a lifelong experience of penance. Just doing penance over and over and over, because there's no end game. There is no forgiveness. There is therefore now much condemnation in the woke church. All you've got to do is step out of line and you'll find out fast enough that there is condemnation in the woke church. And so if there is no end game, how can it produce anything but division after division after division debilitating the ability of the church to stand against an ever secularizing society? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, what? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That means that everyone in that congregation, everyone gathered around that table is to have an attitude of forgiveness toward others. And forgiveness is not constantly saying, you know what? I know you've apologized for what your great-grandparents did to my great-grandparents before, but I'm feeling pretty bad about it again today, so why don't you apologize again? That is not forgiveness. That is not reconciliation. That is not recognizing that any sin that I have has been nailed to the cross of Christ, any sin you have has been nailed to the cross of Christ. Therefore, we both stand absolutely dependent upon the one righteousness of Christ, so I have no grounds to hold anything against you, let alone your progenitors who I never met. It is a constant system of endless penance. Now, let me make a real scary application here because Paul did it. Go on down in chapter 3. It's right here to verse 22. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I got no place, I got no reason not to. Slaves, 
In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Keep that one there and go down just a few sentences to chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, that's kurioi. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. No, wait a minute now. <clears throat> because you also have a kurion, a kurios, a Lord in heaven. Paul, did, did you just draw that parallel? Paul, come on. Yeah, he did. I want you to think with me for a moment. The radical nature of the unity that exists amongst believers that is presumed by the apostle here is that you can have at the same table masters and their slaves at the same Lord's table. And Paul says to the slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, there is a little something there if you notice the language. Masters what? On earth. That is your earthly masters. It's literally your fleshly masters. Now, is there not in those words a foundation for undoing the concept of slavery? that it's merely an earthly relationship, a fleshly relationship, that there is a higher relationship that exists in Jesus Christ because these are brothers and sisters with one another, most definitely. But you simply have to deal with the reality that even though you can virtue signal yourself into an A-plus category today by throwing Jonathan Edwards under the bus... By going after Whitfield, you can make yourself just so accepted today by attacking those men, and upon what basis? Upon what basis? There are numerous other passages we could go to. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Peter likewise addresses the reality of the fact that these books are written during a period of time where slavery was an absolute part of the society itself and had been for hundreds of years. And he recognizes that God called people to salvation from every strata of the society and identifies them as brothers and sisters in Christ gathered around the same table. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems obvious to me that recognizing the liberty that we have in Christ would have resulted in masters who themselves would grant justice and liberty to others. But Paul does not identify their position in the society as one that is a position of sin. Oh, but, but people back during slave periods in the United States quoted the same verses. Yeah, they had the same Bible. That's not an argument. 
unless you can provide a meaningful counter-argument that contextualizes things properly and engages in meaningful hermeneutics, that's not a counter-argument. That's just simply an observation where you're trying to poison the well. Deal with the reality of the early church and the apostolic teaching that brought about the supernatural unity of that church. Where did that supernatural unity come from? Well, verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's literally the, 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 the bond of perfection. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful, etc., etc. Here's the point, my friends. When we understand the nature of the gospel and that it's not a human-oriented thing, it's what God has done in Jesus Christ, that he has joined a particular people to his son, his elect people, He has joined them to Jesus Christ so that his death becomes their death, his burial, their their burial, his resurrection, their resurrection, and therefore his perfect righteousness is imputed to them. Their sins are laid upon him. His righteousness is given to them. That results in the creation of a people who stand before God on the exact same grounds. And any movement that would seek to begin to find that foundation of unity in anything else, or that would even brook the possibility that you should have ethnic spaces or political spaces or national spaces, whatever else it might be, within the local fellowship does not understand what the gospel is about in the first place. And so when I began to hear people talking about this kind of movement within the church, the first thought that came across my mind, but there's no distinction. Don't you understand the the, the beautiful foundation of the unity that is ours? I know that many in this movement haven't traveled outside the United States. They have a very, very American-centered experience. But I can tell you, I've partaken of the Lord's Supper in churches in South Africa that were black and Indian and white Afrikaner and a bunch of, uh, then they they even allowed, allowed a Scotsman in like me. And we've partaken of the Lord's Supper. And my friends, there is a supernatural unity to the body that is seen in that that is absolutely beautiful and I think it's worth defending. That's why we're here this evening. We could say much about motivations. We could say much about who's saying what. Let me finish with this. If you love the gospel's message that you stand before God clothed in a righteousness that is perfect in and of itself, that brooks no addition and no subtraction, then you must be deeply concerned about the movement we see around us at this time. I know there are many people who are promoting these ideas who would agree with me on the basics, but they're not seeing what the application really requires of their understanding.
We need to pray for them and pray for ourselves that we will be clear in explaining what we believe and why we believe it.